Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 496 for November 6th, 2019. On today's show, pianist Andres Vial. This show is supported by its members, without whom the jazz session would not be possible. I'm trying hard to make this show and my other podcast a brief chat into my living, and you can help me do that by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are now two levels, 5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. So visit thejazzsession.com slash join and do the thing. Thanks. Andres Vial's new piano trio record is called Gang of Three. It starts with a tune called Atongaga Blues. Andres Vial, welcome to the Jazz Session. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. We're here to talk about your new record, Gang of Three, which is a trio album, and the title might seem to obviously refer to that, but actually there's more of a story to the title than that, and it involves uh, several of just about everybody's favorite musicians. So will you talk about uh, at least part of the inspiration for the phrase Gang of Three? A couple years ago, I started reading Robin Kelly's excellent biography on Thelonious Monk. And at one point, he discusses this uh, friendship that Monk had with Bud Powell and Elmo Hope. Basically, when they were in their late teens, uh, early 20s, they used to hang out together all the time. They were pretty much inseparable. They would practice together, go to jam sessions together, eat their meals together. And they had this, this great musical friendship that certainly, from the perspective of a jazz musician, if you listen to any of them or, or the three of them, you'll hear a lot of uh, sort of common vocabulary and voicings and, and lines. In my case, Elmo was, out of the three, the musician that I was introduced to the latest. I got into Monk and Bud before I got into Elmo. So when I first heard Elmo, uh, I heard all these lines and, you know, voicings and certain things that I before that I had considered to be kind of a classic Bud, Bud Lick or a classic Monk kind of voicing. And then I heard Elmo playing it and the line started to blur. And I realized that, you know, the three of them coming up together probably influenced each other to a much greater extent than, than people realize. Were you so, reading that biography in preparation to record Spherology, which was your, your Monk album, the album before this one? I think at that point I'd already cut that record. I guess we can talk a little bit later about my connection to Monk's music. And, you know, I've been studying and playing his music for going on 15 years now. But I think it must have been Peter Bernstein that told me about the the Kelly biography. And I hadn't read it before, so I, I picked it up. And that friendship with these, these three pianists, this sort of inseparable gang of three, was basically the inspiration for the song initially. So when I, when I wrote the piece, I tried to incorporate a few little 
quotes or references to each of their playing styles. And, and I took, I ended up with this melody that is, is kind of a three note motif that I was able to play over three different chords using a, a cross rhythm of three against four. So this, this uh, idea of patterns, patterns of three kept on coming back. And then zooming out a little bit, I, I was thinking about how special a relationship musically uh, the, the piano trio is to me. Um, you know, when you put a piano player and a bass player and a drummer together, there's a certain kind of magic that happens with those three people that's really difficult to, to put into words. But that to me is another kind of very special gang of three. And then I also was thinking about, you know, recent events in my own life. My wife and I had a kid who's now three. And suddenly we have this third roommate in our house who never pays rent, who expects all his meals to be, uh, to be made in a timely fashion, never cleans up after himself. But, um, you know, we have our own gang of three now with our, with our son. So I guess it's kind of a tribute to these special friendships that happen with a, with a group of three people that are connected that way. noticed about this record i didn't notice it until i read the press materials which was after i had listened to the record already but once i did read the press materials i noticed that every piece on this album all of which are composed by you has some sort of story behind it which made me think are you a kind of get up in the morning and and write whether you're inspired or not kind of writer are you uh i have an idea like a not necessarily even a musical idea and i'm going to see if i can get it down as a piece of music how, how do you find yourself composing? I think there are a, a bunch of different types of processes uh, that can take place. Sometimes I'll be writing a piece whenever I have, you know, a spare 20 minutes. It could be over the course of six months that I, I might be working on, on one piece or a few pieces kind of concurrently. Other times, if I have the chance, you know, I'll, I'll try to work on a specific piece every day and and refine the idea until I feel like it's a solid compositional standpoint to, to start to start from, uh, or at least to be able to, you know, have a chart and bring it to a gig and, and play it with people. But most of the tunes that I write, I'll usually just be improvising at the piano and I'll, I've got my little voice recorder and I'll just hit record and improvise an idea for, for 20 or 30 minutes. And usually I'll go back and listen to that recording and parse out the different sections that, that, that seem interesting to me, or I, I'll know right away which are the strongest parts of the improvisation, and I use that to craft the song. You know, a tune like Montaigne, for example, which is the, the fifth cut on the record, that was pretty much written in one sitting. 
then it took me a few years to learn how to be able to improvise on it and play it well. So that's a, an entirely uh, separate kind of a concern when you're an improvising musician. You could write a great tune or what you think is a great tune, but then after that you have to learn how to blow on it. <laughs> so say more about that. For example, in the in that particular example of Montaigne, what makes it challenging to improvise over? Well, that tune has uh, kind of an unusual chord progression and chord colors. Um, you know, typically, if we're talking about uh, you know Western music, we talk about major chords and minor chords. But that tune actually has a bunch of chords that are that have a major third and a minor third, um, where the minor third is stacked on the top. So, you know, in jazz, we we call that a sharp nine. So, um, you could call it a, a major seven sharp nine chord so it's it's a pretty complex chord color and uh, it can be difficult to navigate a tune that has um, those types of, of colors um, and I guess it's a, it's a fairly new kind of chord color that I'm exploring um, as a composer I have one other tune that I wrote a few years ago that used that color and I'd heard that that color in some some uh, contemporary uh, classical music, uh, uh, impressionist classical music as well. But uh, again, it's you know it's one thing to write a tune using that color, but then to figure out, figure out how you're going to express it and tell a story with it in the context of an improvisation is a it, it's an additional challenge. It's interesting that pieces can come out of improvisation and yet not necessarily easily lend themselves to more improvisation. That's true. I guess part of it is that, well, you want to write a tune that's that's going to be interesting and, and compelling for the listener and for yourself and whoever you're going to play the tune with. It's got to be a tune with a strong enough melody and an interesting enough chord progression and form that you're actually going to want to play it more than once and hopefully, you know, play it on a tour or play it over the years and get deeper and deeper into it. So I think that process of, uh, that initial process of improvising, then you're really in this kind of, hopefully, you know, you're, you're in a state of uh, um, channeling some kind of inspiration, but you don't necessarily have to think about the form. If you want to take 20 minutes to explore the color of one chord, or you want to shift into um, another aspect of developing as a musician, where maybe you're looking at a certain cross rhythm, and, and even if you're working on improvising, um, maybe at, at a certain point you'll you'll focus on a on a certain 
polyrhythm and how you can play that uh, in different ways on the piano. Um, but so it's sort of, you know, it's like having a sketchbook. That's a lot of stuff that can happen in the privacy of your own practice room. But when it comes to presenting the music uh, in public and, and recording albums, um, you know, you want to refine your ideas and make sure that, that everything is as clear as, and logical as, as it can be so that it makes sense to the listener and, and, and it makes sense to the, to the musicians who are going to play the music with you. Let's not go any further before we talk about the other two people who join you on this record, two just absolutely fabulous musicians. Tell us who they are and uh, how they ended up on this album. On bass, we had Desron Douglas and on drums, Eric McPherson. Desron played bass on most of my previous record, Spherology Volume 1. I had such a great experience cutting that record that I knew I wanted to try to cut another record with him, and I knew I wanted to do a trio record. I sent him a message. We were sort of chatting back and forth about, uh, about the, this new trio record. And, you know, he plays with so many great drummers. So I told him what the project was about and what, you know, that the music, you know, was going to be a modern jazz record, but it had some African influences and some South American influences and that I wanted to record it, everybody in the same room with, without any isolation or bass amps or anything like that. And so I asked him who he would recommend, who he thought would be, you know, the best call considering all those things. And he suggested Eric McPherson. And I'm a huge Emac fan. So I, you know, I thought it was a great call and that's basically how it came about. What made your experience recording Spherology with Desron Douglas such a good one? What made you want to use him again? From the sound perspective, he has the biggest bass sound <laughs> I've ever heard. And as I mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm pretty old school when it comes to recording. Like Most of my albums have, have been recorded entirely acoustically with everybody in the same room. I have a hard time putting on headphones and having to twist knobs and adjust volumes while I'm, I'm recording a record. And I love being able to just go into the studio, everybody in the same room. And, you know, you get... People uh, of the caliber of, of Desron or Rodney Green, Peter Bernstein, in the same room together, they can balance their sound acoustically, and you can really capture an organic ensemble performance where everything is just beautifully balanced because the musicians are listening to each other, and all the musicians know how to get a big, beautiful sound without playing too much, without playing too loud and, and covering the other musician's sounds, so to speak. That was definitely one quality of, of Desron's uh, playing that, that really um, spoke to me. But also his commitment to the music, his honesty and his ability to really support the music and be an anchor for everything that's happening his incredible groove and funkiness. Uh, I mean, I could go on. All, all the musicians that, that played on that record, you know, are, are, are fantastic. But I think Desron had everything that I was looking for in a bass player. Um, and I, I was just excited about the possibility of, of uh, recording again with him, um, but in a trio setting.
Let's take a break from the music to talk about what we value. I think it's safe to say that if you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, you value improvised music and the people who make it. So do I. I also think it's important that we save for posterity not just the music itself, but the stories behind it. That's the project I've been working on for a dozen years now, and I can only do it because people like you make the transition from being listeners to being members. If you also value these stories and this archive of knowledge, I really need your help to keep it going for years to come. Become a member for $5 or $10 at thejazzsession.com join. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. If you value what I do, let me know with your membership. Thank you. And now, back to the episode. The second track on this album, uh, and I apologize in advance, but is uh, called something akin to Chacarera para Wayne. And That's right. uh, I didn't know anything about that particular folk dance or music style. Will you say something about it? Kind of help the listeners know what they're hearing? That is, uh, yeah, the Chacarera is a uh, northern Argentinian uh, folk uh, music dance, music and dance style. And it has origins, uh, has Spanish origins, but it also has uh, African origins and uh, South American indigenous origins, which are perhaps less known um, than if we talk about uh, music from Cuba or Brazil, for example, where the African connections are more apparent, um, or perhaps there's been uh, significantly more research done uh, in terms of the the origin of the music and the, and the connection of the music to to uh, West Africa and Central Africa. The Chacarera is a it's a it's a folkloric dance and music style that is popular throughout Argentina, and that some Argentinian composers have uh, you know incorporated into their works, even if they're, they're classical works. And, you know, you have people like Guillermo Klein, who's also exploring uh, taking that rhythm and putting it in a jazz context. So that was definitely something that I was interested in doing with, with this record. I grew up listening to Chacareras and lots of other Argentinian folk, style, uh, folk styles because my mom is from Argentina. And I was interested in writing a piece for, you know, a jazz piano trio that could explore the rhythm uh, of the chacarera. 
So that's, that's how it came about. But after I wrote the piece, there was something about the harmony, the paddle point harmony, and this, this kind of dark, very sparse, melodic theme that, that made me think a lot about Wayne Shorter. So that's, that's the origin of the title. So I guess there's, there's Argentinian inspiration to the piece and also uh, you know, the inspiration of, of Wayne Shorter kind of coming together. It's always interesting uh, to me to hear folk music that's in really complex meters or me- you know polyrhythmic folk music. Like I, I play in a, a Venezuelan band and we play Venezuelan merengue, which is all in five. It used to be in six, right. and they eventually decided you know that's one beat too many. So now it's all in five, and people dance to it. But when we were first, uh, you know the the other people in the band, except for this the singer uh, who's from Venezuela, the other people in the band are not. And so when we were first being introduced to this rhythm it was the idea that people would dance to it was almost shocking because it's so challenging to play and i mean five is not a particularly hard meter but the way that the five is accented in this and then when i was listening to this piece you know there's there's six eight there's three four there's four four kind of all mixed in together and have i've never seen anyone dance to this i have never heard of it before i heard your album but I just know that if I went to Argentina, people would dance to this as effortlessly as we would dance to any like four on the floor, you know, club music. And that always is just kind of incredible to me that the things that can become very normal rhythmically for people and to other people like me, for example, seem remarkably challenging to play. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it was interesting, too, because you're spot on, uh, you know, in your assessment that that the rhythm has you know three four and six eight and and four four kind of elements to it um and it's possible that some of those um polyrhythms and polymeters may have existed in the in the the spanish form of the music because of the influence of andalusia and uh you know the moors and the, the muslim music north african influence that that happened in spain so, in fact, there are probably at least two instances, you know, in the history of, of the music where the African polymetric, polyrhythmic concept sort of found its way into this Spanish uh, folkloric style. I, you know, I've never, I've never danced the chacarera myself, but it was definitely, uh, you know, just growing up listening to records by Carlos de Fulvio and Mercedes Sosa, you know, I heard chacareras and other uh, Argentinian dance rhythms, you know, in the house. Um, but I'm actually going to Argentina uh, for an artist residency in December and January. So I hope to, to delve much more deeply into the music and hopefully get to see some, some folkloric dancing and study some of the drumming as well. So maybe I can give you a progress report <laughs> <laughs> sometime in the future about that. Now, I know your bandmates on this album are master musicians, but uh, you will surprise me greatly if you told me that they were both familiar with the Chacarera. So is this something that you had to teach to them? Uh, how did that go? How close is what we're hearing to you know, the actual kind of folk rhythms that we might hear in Argentina, etc.? Well, I mean, I, I would say I, w- I definitely wouldn't consider the piece to be... A, it's, it's not a traditional piece. Even in terms of the form, it's not traditional... And of course, there are, are aspects of the harmony and the, and the phrasing of the melody that, that are, are inspired by jazz music and, and, and by Wayne. So it's definitely a kind of, a, I'd say, a contemporary jazz take on a folkloric rhythm. But uh, as it happens, Des and Eric 
were, I think they were on tour with David Murray right before we cut this record. So basically, uh, you know, I live in Montreal. I drove down to New York the day before the session and we had a three-hour rehearsal where we ran through all the tunes. And I showed them, I played them some examples, uh, you know, of Chacareras and, and showed them some videos of drummers playing the, the bombos criollos at the the traditional drum that, that, that these rhythms are, are played on. I don't think either of them had really heard that music before at all, but they also immediately got it. They picked up on all those elements of polyrhythm and polymeter and groove that, are, that happen in the music, and they were really excited to, to explore that. So they sort of got a crash course in that style, um, and I think they both have enough experience playing other South American styles, um, you know, and Afro jazz, being, playing in Afro jazz kind of settings where they felt comfortable being able to bring their own ideas to the table within this framework that I, I had um, come up with, with, with the tune. further into the record and talk about Ferguson. As I mentioned, I listened to this record before I read anything about it, but I did see Mm -hmm. the song titles and it could have referred to something else, but as soon as the song started playing, I was thinking, well, this is probably related uh, to Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown. And uh, so then I read the, the materials that come with the record and see that it's uh, inspired by a poem so actually, uh, before we uh, hear uh, the tune itself, can you uh, just tell us a little bit about the poet and how you came across the poem? The poem is titled Ferguson, St. Louis Blues, and it's by Jason Blackbird Salmon, who is uh, a beautiful um, poet um, from Montreal who I've had the fortune of, of um, performing with, and we've been friends for more than a decade now. He's a veteran member of the Community Vibe Collective, um, which for your listeners who uh, don't know of this collective, this amazing, um, basically a black music collective that was uh, founded about 15 years ago in Montreal by uh, a drummer named Jason Promesse. And this collective at this point probably has more than 100 members musicians, poets, rappers, singers, they have created through two or three weekly performances that, as I mentioned, have been going on for for more than 15 years, uh, the scene where people get together and there's a lot of musicians from the Caribbean, from 
there's some African musicians, a lot of African Canadian, African American musicians, and and also it's open to people from other cultures. But the focal point is is a celebration of of black music. So you'll get everything from a Haitian Vodun drummer to a core player from Senegal to musicians that are that, that play reggae that are that are from the Caribbean to you know jazz musicians who are have moved up here from the states all trying to find a, a common ground um, and all drawing from their experiences playing black music so Jason wrote this poem which um, yes uh, it's it's it was his reflection um, on uh, what the events that happened in, in Ferguson and the shooting of, of, of Michael Brown and I think it's best to just let the poem speak for itself, but maybe we can listen to it before we listen to the uh, instrumental version of Ferguson that, that uh, I recorded on my record. Well, Jason Blackbird at Selman has been kind enough to give us permission to play a recording of Ferguson's St. Louis Blues, and here it is. <laughs> She is more beautiful than anything. Although the sky is falling, all the inside dogs let go. Let yourself be better than you've ever been. For her sake and yours, the music up, the noise, the damage down. Talk about a heat wave. Talk about hands up, guns up, guns doing more talking than the will to live be free 400 years later still trying to decide whether to treat a boy like a man or a dog or the boy that he is in the space of six seconds again against time time is neither speeding up nor slowing down time ain't saying nothing silence more heavy than gold Ain't nothing left to do but be ready to describe the indescribable, this death between life, this fear of everything. You afraid of me when I should be afraid of you. Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Oscar Grant, Amity Diallo, Emmett Till, Freddie Villanueva, Anthony Griffith, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Oakland, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Africville, Moyanar, Cotonej, NDG, watch me watch you, afraid, 
and weary. Know that it's okay to be confused, frustrated, angry. Normalizing pain, depression, things as simple as true sentiment. Let a boy grow up to be a man. Never chop a tree before it's time. So that's Jason Blackbird Selman's poem, Ferguson, St. Louis Blues, and then uh, the opening of Andres's composition, Ferguson. How do you get from a poem to a piece of music when, especially in this case, although I know uh, you've written that you hope this won't always be the case, but right now there's no, no one singing these words. So we're just hearing the music you've written inspired by the poem. How did that process work for you in this particular case? Well, I actually, um, I, I listened to uh, Jason's performance uh, of the poem, and um, this is unbeknownst to him. I actually, I, I surprised him and ended up giving him a, a copy of the album when it was done, saying, check out this song that I wrote that was inspired by your poem. Um, but initially, uh, I, I listened to his recording you know, of him reciting the poem, and I wrote down the, the lyrics and, and treated them as lyrics and basically set the lyrics to, to song and, and wrote a melody. Um, so the melody that you hear me play in, in the song is actually uh, pretty much note for note goes with, with the lyric. However, I knew that I wanted to cut strictly a trio record instrumentally, in the future, you know, I, I'm hoping that I get a chance to to record this song again with a singer. When Desron and Eric came up to Montreal um, for our album launch a couple of weeks ago, we actually had the chance to to rehearse the song with Jason reciting the poem, which was a very moving experience. I thought I was recording it on my phone, but it turns out that I wasn't, so I can't share that with you. But I think in the future, if listeners hear the version with with the, the lyrics, it'll make sense how that connects to the, the shape of the melody. Do you feel compelled in any way to use your art to speak to what's happening in the world, you know, in a, a socio-political sense? I think I do. In the case of, of this piece, I think Jason's poem really touches on a lot of different aspects of the, the African-American or African-Canadian experience. And even though uh, I have, you know, my own emotional response to what's going on, you know, in the States, but also in Canada, uh, given that it's really, 
a topic that that concerns the African American community directly. I felt that bringing in Jason and using that inspiration of of his poem to to tell that story was the the right thing to do. Get his perspective on it. There's an element of resilience and and also strength and celebration that is present and, and described in, in the piece, in addition to, you know, of course, the tremendous sadness and difficulty that is expressed in the poem. I wanted to sort of capture that range of, uh, uh, you know, of uh, emotions in, in the piece as well. I know that you've lived and studied in other places, but how has Montreal affected your music, do you think? You know, I, I love Montreal. Um, it's a very artistic, very multicultural environment to grow up in and, and to be a part of. I think certain things that you, know, that you see in the U.S. in terms of how neighborhoods can be, can be very divided, you know, socio economic ways or along ethnic lines. You see that in Montreal, but to a lesser extent. And of course, in Canada, we have this social safety net that levels the, the playing field to a certain extent. That changes the, the feeling in, in different neighborhoods. With something like the, the Community Vibe Collective, you have this beautiful meeting place of people from different cultures and different backgrounds that, that are coming together to listen to each other and, and create together. So that's definitely something that makes me proud to be a, a Montrealer. our attention away from Gang of Three for a moment. We mentioned at the beginning of this interview, Spherology Volume 1, which is the album that came out before this one, and it's an album of the music of Monk. 
I know that there is more planned for that series. Uh, tell me what's coming up next. Well, I've already done a couple of recording sessions, which will hopefully culminate in volumes two and three of the Monk Tribute series. The one that I'm really excited about is actually a collaboration with some tap dancers from Toronto, Travis Knights and Tanya Knights, who also I initially played with with the Community Five Collective, at least I'd say going back 12 years. And we played a gig together. I think we played a couple of gigs together last year and went into the studio and did a couple of sessions. And we're really exploring Monk's music from that perspective of, of tap dance. And a lot of people don't know that Monk was actually, you know, he was a hoofer. He was a, a tap dancer uh, as a teenager. And he accompanied other tap dancers in Harlem for years and he's got that tune shuffle boil which is actually that's based on the shuffle ball change which is a tap dance rhythm so we wanted to explore that that connection um, with the album and it's definitely been a learning experience for all of us but there's such a beautiful dancing quality to monk's music that it's it's an easy fit um but learning how to play you know as a rhythm section or in a quartet setting uh, where you're backing up a tap dancer or two tap dancers. It's definitely been a, a creative challenge for, for all of us. So I'm about to go through all the tapes of, of everything that we recorded, and, and hopefully there's an album there, which should come out sometime next year. My guest on this episode has been Andres Vial. His new album on Chromatic Audio Records is called Gang of Three. Andres, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad you took the time, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us more about Monk or whatever else you're up to. Thanks so much, Jason. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest, Andres Vial. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Dave Rabel for the logo. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the Jazz Session. One cool reason to follow is that I post a clip from the archives of the show on both those accounts each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really improves my ability to reach new listeners by making the show climb up the rankings in its category. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Next week, my guest will be keyboard giant John Medeski. You might know him from Medeski, Martin, and Wood and many other places. Until then, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
morning, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.